Good morning, Crossway. Hope you're all doing well. It's always a privilege to preach God's Word to you. I'd like to start with a question. What is man's greatest need? What is man's greatest need? Is it universal health care? Is it reparations? Is it some self-help book? Maybe going to church. Is that your greatest need? Get some religion in your life, some encouragement. Maybe get married. Well, today in our passage, we'll see the most important thing for us. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'll read it. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you this morning again for gathering us up here so that we can sing and worship you, and worship you through giving and the reading of your word. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you do for us, for providing for us, for sending your son, and giving us good news. Lord, I pray as we focus on the gospel this morning, I pray that it would be sweet And it would fall on ears who hear. Lord, help me this morning to proclaim your word boldly and accurately. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses here are all about the bold witness of Paul the Apostle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was very straightforward with the gospel. Probably more than any man that's ever lived. You couldn't be with Paul for very long without him bringing it up. No matter where Paul was, he was sharing the gospel. This was the aim of his life, and it was the aim of every conversation. If he was in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, he would rejoice. He had a captive audience. This soldier can't get away from him. He's going to hear the gospel. As Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he wants to make them more bold for the gospel. And when you're reading these letters, when you're reading the Bible, you want to think about who he's writing to. These Romans, think about where they're living. They're living in a place where it's hard to be outspoken as a Christian. They're living in the capital city of the Roman Empire. They're surrounded by all these different temples to all these mythological gods. On every side of them, there's gross idolatry, extreme arrogance and pride. There's every form of wickedness here. 
These believers are living under the heavy hand of Caesar. And so Paul, very quickly in his letter, is telling them to be bold for the gospel, to be unashamed. And you, no matter where you are, no matter where I am, no matter how bold we already are, we can all grow in our boldness for the gospel. Every single person here has opportunities to speak for Jesus. And sometimes we hesitate. Sometimes we shrink back. And so we too need to hear this message and be encouraged to be unashamed of the gospel. Whether it be in our own family circle, sometimes it, that's actually one of the hardest places to share the gospel. It can be awkward. Whether it be in your office at work, or if you work on a farm, or in your school, maybe your neighborhood, no matter where you are, we need to be unashamed. Because not everyone in Bakersfield is saved. Not everyone in Shafter, Delano, Taft, wherever you live, not everyone there is saved. You encounter people every day who still need to hear the gospel. And that's why this morning I want to share with you five reasons from this text why we should be unashamed. Five reasons. But before we get to the reasons, we need to first look at this strong statement, this strong assertion that Paul is making. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now let's notice who says this. This is Paul. This man who was imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Damascus and Berea, laughed at in Athens, considered a fool in Corinth. He was declared a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. If anyone had reason to be ashamed or to shrink back, it would be Paul. And to make this situation worse, pagans in Paul's day branded Christianity as atheism. You guys would be atheists. It was seen as atheism because they only believed in one God. They didn't worship all the many gods that they worshipped. And they were also called cannibals for doing what we did this morning. Cannibals for eating and drinking the blood. But none of this intimidated Paul. The Jewish religious leaders of Jerusalem, the smart, influential pagans in Athens, Ephesus, Corinth, this did not intimidate Paul. In the face of all this opposition and all these reasons why he would want to shrink back, he says, for I am unashamed of the gospel. Right before this verse, he says, I am under obligation. He says, I am eager. Paul was eager to preach and teach the gospel in Rome, this hub of the pagan empire that virtually ruled the entire world. We always talk about Hollywood. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Hollywood, known as, that's where all the bad stuff happens. That's where all the bad ideas come from. They put it in movies. Be careful of Hollywood. Rome was Hollywood on steroids. 
the gospel at this time was considered a joke. Our call to worship this morning from 1 Corinthians 1. The cross was folly to the world. This religion didn't have big numbers. It was growing quickly, but it didn't have big numbers. They were a small body of believers in this huge Roman Empire. And so they didn't have a lot of influence. Their church Instagram page didn't have a lot of followers. They didn't have important people giving them clout or respect. And on the surface, Christianity was kind of weird. Who are these people who are preaching about this Jewish carpenter? These fishermen who probably can't even speak good? Preaching about this guy who apparently was God and died for sins and then rose from the dead? Where was he from again? Nazareth? Can anything good have even come from there? Oh, and he died on a cross? Wow. The worst way to die, the way the worst criminals die, and our eternal destiny depends on our faith in him. So if Paul, who's dealing with all of this, can say, I am eager to go into this place and I can be, and I am unashamed, then surely we can too. And that is the goal of this morning. By the grace of God, we want to see why Paul is so unashamed and we want to be unashamed ourselves. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever wondered why when we get saved, how come God doesn't just take us straight to heaven? When you first believed, why didn't God just send down a chariot of fire and take me up to heaven like Elijah? Why are we still here? No offense to our worship team, but worship in heaven is so much better. No offense to you, but the fellowship in heaven is so much better. The preaching in heaven, so much better. There's perfect preachers in heaven. So why would God leave us here? Because this is the only place where we can share the gospel. It is the only place with unbelievers. It's the only place where we can do the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. We don't need to share the gospel in heaven. So we are here to take as many people with us as we can. And while we're here, we will face opposition. We will suffer. We will face people who think we're weird. But we must be unashamed. And so, finally, the five reasons why we should be unashamed. Number one, it is a powerful gospel. Paul declares, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, why? Why, Paul? He says, for it is the power of God for salvation. This word for introduces the why. It introduces the because. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. And this word here for power in the Greek is dunamis. This is where we get our word dynamite. It carries with it the omnipotence of God. And it is God's power alone that can save men from sin. It is God's power alone that can take sinners 
and give them eternal life. The gospel has the explosive power to blow up worldviews and beliefs. There's no other message or philosophy that can stand with it. No other message or religion can hang with God's gospel. Now, people, people have an innate desire to want to be changed. People want to look better. They want to feel better. They want to have more money or power or influence. And that is the premise of all advertising, isn't it? People want to change. That's the presupposition. I know you want to change. I know you want better. And so it's the job of the advertiser to think this product or service will give you that. People want to be changed inwardly. They want to feel less guilty. They want to feel more content. And tons of programs and philosophies and religions promise to meet those desires. Many man-made schemes succeed in making people feel better about themselves. But their ideas have no power to remove the sin that brings true feelings of guilt and discontentment. You can go to therapy all you want, but if there's no gospel, that weight is always going to be on your back. Like Christian's burden in the Pilgrim's Progress, no amount of therapy or talking it out is ever going to get rid of that heavy burden that we carry in our soul. It is only when we lay it down at the cross. These man-made ideas and man-made religions can't make man right with God. And that is man's greatest need. In fact, the more successful that these other gospels, these other approaches, the more successful that they are, the more that it actually drives you away from God. It insults God's salvation. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Colossians 1.21 says, we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Ephesians 2 says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. That's a big problem. And through the prophet Isaiah, Jesus, the Lord said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or can a leopard change his spots? No. It's not within man's power to change his own nature. So, what do we do? How do we get from that? How do we get from that to being a child of God? How do we, what do we do? This is the story of everyone here who believes. Everyone who has come up and given their testimony or come up and gotten baptized you weren't born saved. I don't see John the Baptist here leaping in his mother's womb when he heard Jesus. You're not born saved. You're born dead in your sin. So what do we do? How do you get from being enemies of God to now singing songs like, Behold the Lamb? I know it wasn't a self-help book. I know it wasn't because... You just started to be so focused and you were just so disciplined and you got up early. No. 
It was nothing you did. It was the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was with the preaching of the gospel. It was that dunamis, God's dynamite that blew up your heart of stone open like a closed-off cave or like a building that needed to come down. God blows it up. And then he gives you a new heart. We often think that we're just out drowning at sea and then God throws us a life vest. But according to Scripture, we're actually dead at the bottom of the sea. We're like Lazarus in the tomb, and we need Jesus to call us out with his power, revive us, and then call us out. We need God's resurrection, omnipotent power. So when you share the gospel with someone, you can be confident, and you don't need to be unashamed, because the gospel is powerful. I'm unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Number two, it is a saving gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As Christians, we use words like salvation, and we use words like saving. The word salvation, what does it mean? It means deliverance from great danger and destruction. It means to be rescued from apparent ruin. R.C. Sproul has written a book called Saved from What? And he talks about when he was a college student walking around his college campus and this new Christian comes up to him and gets in his face and says, Brother, have you been saved? And it scared him to death. He ran back to his dorm and he said, man, I was a Christian and this scared me to death. He said he ran back to his dorm room and closed his door and opened his Bible and he began to think through, well, I know I'm saved, but saved from what? What are we saved from? That's a question you need to ask yourself if you know you're saved. What are you saved from? You don't need to be saved from loneliness. You could go join a CrossFit gym or a pottery class or a book club and make some friends. That'll help with that. No. We need to be saved from God himself. We need to be saved from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. It is him that we have sinned against. And there is only one person that can save you from God. And that is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Only the God-man can deliver us from perishing eternally. The beauty of the gospel is that the one that we need to be saved from is the very one who saves us. And Paul knows this, and he understands this, and that's why he's unashamed of the gospel. That's why Paul can march into cities and preach the gospel no matter the opposition. He knows that this message actually saves. Paul knows who he was before salvation. He knows how much he's changed. He was a persecutor of Christians. He calls himself the chief 
of sinners. He knows what this gospel can do for a man. He knows that it actually saves and it actually changes lives. We don't have to hope and pray that it works. I hope this diet works. I hope it does too. But the gospel of Jesus works. Not because of your work, but because of God's. And every religion tells you to do this and this, and then hopefully, maybe, God will let you into heaven. Mormons, do this and this and go knock on their door and don't drink caffeine and wear these special pajamas. Jesus, Jesus, he was just Lucifer's brother. And when you die, if you did enough good works, maybe Elohim will let you have your own planet. Jehovah's Witness, do this and this and this and go knock on their door and don't celebrate any birthdays or anything. Jesus, he was just an angel. And when you die, if you did enough good works, maybe Jehovah will let you into heaven. Maybe. Muslims, do this and this and make sure you pray at this time and face this direction towards Mecca. Jesus, he was just a prophet. This guy Muhammad, he came, he was a thing. And when you die, if you did enough good works, maybe God will let you into heaven. But in reality, according to the truth, these other religions aren't actually maybes. No amount of good work can save. But the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture actually saves. It's not a maybe. And it doesn't depend on your performance. Your work is actually the reason that you need a Savior. And so Jesus came and did the work for us like only he could. How does this verse say that we get this salvation. It says to everyone who what? Believes. It takes belief. Now the word here is pistuo, believes. And this carries the basic idea of trusting in, relying on, having faith. When this word is used in the New Testament, when talking about salvation, it's actually it's usually, usually used in the present continuous form. So then it could actually be translated, is believing. Faith, honestly, it can be a little confusing to think about. But we do acts of faith every day. This morning, if you took a shower, you had faith that the water would come through and it wouldn't be hot or cold. I don't know, some of you take hot, cold showers. You trust that your water's good enough to drink? Uh, not all of you. We have a filter. We drive across bridges. We trust and we have faith that it won't collapse under us. We trust airplanes to fly us to places like Uganda safely. We couldn't survive without having faith in many different things. Virtually, all of life requires some type of faith. But the faith Paul has in mind here is a supernatural faith produced by God. Ephesians 2.8 says, Faith that is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Eternal life is both gained and lived by faith from God in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved, Paul tells us. God does not first ask men to 
behave like other religions do. God tells us to believe. Our behavior always falls short of God's perfect standard, and therefore no man can save himself by his own good works. Good works are actually the product of salvation. They are not the means of it. They are the fruit of it, not the root. A helpful way to think about good works is worship. We do good works as worship now because of the one who saved us. Salvation, it's also more than just calling yourself a Christian or getting baptized or changing your behavior or going to church and doing communion. Salvation is believing, relying, and resting in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Salvation comes through giving up on our own goodness and works and knowledge and wisdom and trusting in the finished, perfect work of Jesus. And so we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is a saving gospel. Number three, it is a universal gospel. Don't worry, I don't mean universalism. I know that word can be a little scary. But what I mean is, this gospel's for everyone. It has no national, racial, ethnic, or national barriers. It's for everyone. Everyone who believes. That is the only prerequisite. You just have to believe. This gospel isn't just for a certain type of people. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You don't. Or be good enough. You're not. You don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to come from a religious family. You don't have to be moral enough. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to be successful. It is for everyone with a pulse. Everyone who has life. If you're breathing, you need to believe in the gospel. It's for you. It is a one-size-fits-all message. There's not one way for this group of people to be saved and then another way for this group of people to be saved. There's not one way to be saved in the Old Testament and then a new way in the New Testament to be saved. No. You're either looking forward to the Messiah like David or you're looking back to him like us. And you believe in him. There's no other name by which we can be saved. Believing Christ is an empty hand reaching out to Jesus to receive the riches of his grace. The hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. So no matter where you are, no matter what you are, the gospel is for you. It is for anyone and everyone who believes. From Bakersfield to L.A. to New York, Miami, Uganda, Vietnam, Russia, Israel, Iraq, and even Antarctica, if there's someone there who needs to believe in the gospel. It is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And this is why we send missionaries. And this is why we need to keep raising up missionaries. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There are so many people out there who have never heard of this life-saving message, and they're dying. If we look at Revelation 7-9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits alone on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. These verses are a glimpse into that future, into heaven. And it shows people from all over the globe worshiping their Savior. How do they get there? Romans 10.12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, but the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It's for everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is why Paul is unashamed of the gospel. And this is why we need to be unashamed. Because it is for everyone. And we need to get it to everyone. Number four. It is a righteous gospel. This gets even better, if you can believe it. Paul's still looking, he's moving forward with his argument. He says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now this technically means the righteousness that is from God. The righteousness that only God can give. When Martin Luther studied this passage in Wittenberg, Germany, when he came to a saving knowledge of the gospel and when the Reformation first began, he was studying this very verse in the original Greek language. And he originally thought it meant the righteousness that God has. And so he was terrified because he knew that the righteousness that God had would judge him. You know those people with only God can judge me? That's not a good thing. You should warn those people. That's not a good thing. Martin Luther was terrified at that thought. But when he came to understand that, no, this is a righteousness that God gives in the gospel. He called it a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness because it is not from this world. It originates outside of man. It is a righteousness that comes down from heaven above. This righteousness is revealed and given in the gospel. When God saves a person and they believe the gospel, God imparts his righteousness to us. 
This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. The truth that a sinner is declared righteous before God. This righteousness gives you a right standing before God. Jesus, he was born of a virgin. Yes, the virgin birth matters. Because everyone who is born is born in Adam. If Jesus is born of Mary and Joseph, he would have inherited that sin nature. So if you lose the virgin birth, you lose Jesus' perfect life. But he was born of a virgin and didn't inherit that. And he fulfilled all righteousness. He lived a life that was pleasing to God. He lived perfectly so that when we are saved, we get his righteousness. It is revealed to us. It is credited to us. You see, we need, we need more than just payment for our sins. Otherwise, Jesus could have just come down and died in one day. But that's not what happened. Because we need more than just getting back to a balance of zero. We need to be more than just zero. We need righteousness. So how do we get it? When we believe the gospel, God gives it to us. In the Bible, there's three analogies that show us what this means. It's referred to as justification by faith. There's a courtroom analogy, there's a banking analogy, and there's a clothing analogy. In the courtroom analogy, a sinner, a sinner stands before God who is the judge of heaven and earth. The sinner is guilty and condemned with no hope of being accepted by God. He's hopeless. The judge sees everything, every sin, even the ones that he just thought about. The evidence is overwhelming. And the wages of sin is death. This is us. Condemned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ in his perfect righteousness stands next to us in the courtroom and he gives his perfect righteousness to us by faith. And when God looks at us because of our faith in Jesus, rather than condemning us like we deserve, God declares us as the righteousness of God in Christ. We are not declared guilty. We are declared righteous. You see why Paul's unashamed? This is incredible. Guilty sinners are being acquitted before the judge of heaven and earth through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The banking metaphor, do we have any bankers in the house, maybe? Or anyone who uses a bank? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe everybody just puts their money under the mattress? The metaphor is this. In our bank account in heaven, we are negative. We are spiritually bankrupt before God. We owe a debt that we could never pay. And we are sentenced to debtor's prison forever. But in the gospel, the righteousness of Christ is offered to us. And we, when we believe in Christ, God deposits all his riches into our account as if we earned it. But we haven't. So when God looks into our account, instead of seeing us as debtors, 
he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And then the last metaphor, clothing. In and of ourselves before God, we stand naked. All the ugliness is exposed. He not only sees us as we truly are, he sees through us and our motives. All our sin is plain as day to him. There's no covering for our sin. We stand exposed and under his judgment. But in the gospel, he clothes us with his perfect righteousness that he secured in his perfect life and substitutionary death. He covers our sin and covers our nakedness. As Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 3, 8 and 9, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the fourth reason why Paul is unashamed of the gospel. Paul knows there's hundreds of thousands of people in Rome naked before God who have no covering for their sin. And so he is eager and unashamed to go preach this gospel that saves and reveals the righteousness of God. The last reason why we should not be ashamed of the gospel is at the end of verse 17. It is a preserving gospel. And this is a very important reason. Verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or faith for faith, some translations say. There's an emphasis here on the continuity of faith. Our faith in Christ, our believing of the gospel, it's not just a one-time act. It is a way of life. The gospel isn't just the intro course to, uh, to Christianity. It's not just the intro course and then you move on to bigger and better things. There are no bigger and better things. The gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z. You don't graduate from this. You might struggle with learning eschatology, the end times, but when the end times come, you'll know. But we will be marveling and forever learning and diving into the gospel. The righteousness, uh, the righteous, that's us believers. We shall live by faith. For the righteous live by faith. It goes from faith to faith. From start to finish. Our Christian walk that started with faith, it continues by faith. And when we close our eyes at the end of our life, here on earth, when we open them in eternity, we are glorified by faith. Paul tells the Colossians in 2, 6, chapter 2, verse 6, as you, have, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Our life on this earth fundamentally continues the same way it began. By taking a breath and by breathing, breathing God's air. 
And it's similar in the Christian life. True spiritual life continues exactly the way that it began, by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says here at the end, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul here is using Scripture to interpret Scripture. Paul quotes the Old Testament to unlock the meaning, show us what he, what he means by from faith to faith. He also quotes from the Old Testament to show that this isn't something that's new. It's as old as the Old Testament. It was taught by the old prophets. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is from Habakkuk 2.4. Here he's talking about sanctification. The righteous man, that's justification, shall live by faith. That's sanctification. And Paul is saying that You begin by faith, and at that point, you are declared righteous. That righteousness is revealed to you. You have that imputed righteousness. God looks at you and sees the work of Jesus. You are a righteous man now because Jesus was a righteous man in your place. And then you live day by day by faith. True believers who are made righteous will live in faith all their life. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. Justification always leads to sanctification, and sanctification always ends in glorification. I've talked to a good amount of people here who doubt their salvation because they might not be as disciplined as someone else here or because they sinned this week. Romans, 8, chap, Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are facts. These things happen. There aren't any conditions in that verse. It's not... And those whom he called, he also justified. And then if they read their Bible all day, every day, or they're just the most disciplined person and never sin so that then I'll glorify them. No. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't get saved and then get unsaved or lose your salvation. Ephesians 2, faith is a gift, remember? It's a gift. And God doesn't do take-backs. Faith is a gift, and you can't give it back yourself, and you can't lose it, because it didn't depend on you in the first place. You are saved by faith in Jesus who did the work. He is the author and perfecter of faith. The only way for you to stop being saved is if Jesus' work somehow fails. But the work is already done. And the debt is paid. The faith that God gives is good enough from faith to faith. It is a living faith. It's dynamic and active. And it will never fail. I know someone here might be thinking, well, I know this one guy or this one girl who was on fire for the Lord. And then they became an atheist. 
They used to confess Christ, but they just went back to their old ways. And we've never seen them again. This is sad. This has happened with many of my friends. Many friends who used to sing or do concerts and even share this very gospel. But now they're homosexual or they just love their sin. They love their sin so much that now they curse God and his people. I look back at pictures and it makes me so sad. But as sad as it is, this is the evidence of a false believer. This is a Judas disciple, one who was never truly converted to Christ. It was a false faith that was not given by God. First John tells us that if they went out from us, it was made plain to us that they were never of us. Paul is unashamed of the gospel because it isn't something just for a moment and then you move on. It is for your whole life. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take me from his hand. Not even you. The righteous shall live by faith. Now this doesn't mean that you'll never have bad days or bad seasons. This doesn't mean that you'll never sin. Man, that'd be great. But it does mean that we can never go back and live the way that we once lived. So stop looking to your performance so much for your assurance. Stop looking to yourself for comfort. Did you know that actually the more that you grow and the more you learn about God, the more you realize you're way down here? It's when you don't know about, not much about God that you just think like, oh man, it's not that bad. Stop looking to your own performance. Instead, focus On Christ. Focus on the gospel. Otherwise, you're going to be miserable. Have you ever been on a run? I know. Horrible. Miserable. People who like running are crazy. People who run on Thanksgiving, that has to be a sin. That's not what Thanksgiving is for. But have you ever been on a run and you're running and you're just looking down, looking at your feet. Have you ever made the mistake of running without music? Oh man, it's horrible. You hear how tired you are. You hear yourself wheezing. You look down, you see your sweat. Too many of you are running this race while looking down. Looking at yourself running without looking at the finish line, without listening to the sweet music of the gospel. Look to Christ. Stop looking at yourself. Stop worrying about if you're saved or, well, I don't know exactly when I got saved. Do you believe the gospel? Are you trusting in Christ right now? Okay, good. Now keep living. Your Christian life begins the same way it starts and continues and ends by faith. And it's a preserving gospel. You see why Paul's so eager and unashamed? This gospel is incredible. 
hold it up to any other gospel, any other philosophy, any other idea. They don't compare. No man could come up with this. No human could come up with this. Look at the other religions. They all fit into this box of earning your way to heaven. No man would come up with God coming down to save his people, dying for his people. No man comes up with the hero dying for the villain. And so in closing, let me ask you, myself, who will you see this upcoming week? Who lives with you that needs to hear the gospel? There's some kids in your house that need the gospel. Quinn needs the gospel. Who has God placed in your life? This isn't just for preachers or people who are gifted with evangelism or are outgoing. You have relationships with people, with a lot of us, that a lot of us will never meet or know. You are friends with so-and-so that me or Caleb or Mark will never get to talk to or never be on that level. That bedridden person who needs hope. We must be unashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. And because it is the only way for salvation, it actually saves. And because it is for everyone who believes. And in, and in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it is good from faith to faith, from beginning to end. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your gospel. We're so thankful that you sent your son to fulfill all righteousness, to die on a cross and take the wrath for us, to raise from the dead so we can have hope of raising ourselves. Lord, you didn't have to do any of this. But in your great love, you did. Lord, and so we worship you. Every Sunday, we proclaim him. Him we proclaim. Jesus, the only name by which we can be saved. Lord, we love you. We are forever indebted to you. Lord, we thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the opportunity to just focus on the gospel. I pray that we'd be unashamed to talk to anyone, no matter the opposition or what they think of us. It all matters what you think of us, Lord. Lord, we're, we're thankful. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.